I'm Eden. And I'm Nicole. Welcome to Roadside, Roadside Horror, Horror Show. Show. Uh, we are in Texas again this week. Everything's bigger there, including our stories. It's true. It's true. I have uh, a long, longer story this week for you, Ian, but it's like the most Texas thing in the world. <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> I have a pretty damn good story this week, too. It scared the fuck out of me. So Nice. Nice. Well, let's get ourselves in the mood, shall we, with some of the weirder and stranger laws I came across in the great state of Texas during my research. All righty. Hit me with it. Um, this one is like the funniest thing I've ever read. And I'm like, wow, Texans are a really hopeful people. There is a law in Texas that says that criminals must give their victims 24-hour notice, either orally or in writing, to explain the nature of the crime they are about to commit. The fuck? I mean, good on you for trying to get, get ahead of the curve, Texas, but I don't think a lot of criminals are going to abide by this law. Yeah, that's super weird. <laughs> Um, two other laws I came across that I thought were kind of hilarious when you think about them together is regarding how Texans treat certain animals. So you know how Texans are a lot of cowboys and cowboys love their horses. Well, in the great state of Texas, it's completely legal to ride your horse straight into a saloon if you want to. <laughs> What's illegal in Texas is to shoot a buffalo from the second story of a hotel. So basically, if you come into town, you can drive your horse right into the saloon, run up the stairs, but don't shoot that buffalo that you see out the window. What the hell? I know, right? <laughs> oh, Texas. Oh, oh wow. I, I'm really glad. I just looked for my news story. Mm-hmm. And I'm really glad that I saved this one because guess what? It takes place in Texas. Oh my God, this is our supersized Texas episode. Yes, it is. <laughs> uh, a couple other uniquely Texas laws that I found, by the way, where it's illegal to milk someone else's cow in Texas. Uh, you can get a $10 fine if you decide to sneak into your neighbor's barn and milk his cow. <laughs> I'm just going to leave that one right there. I, I kind of, wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In San Antonio, Texas, flirting with the, quote, eyes or hands, end quote, is illegal and enforceable for both men and women. Huh. Don't be making those pretty eyes at me, Eden. I guess not. No more better eyes. Gotcha. <laughs> and uh, the last one that I thought was very interesting is related to weddings in Texas. So Texas is a common law marriage state, still to this day. And... In Texas, two willing parties who are both of the opposite sex, over 18, unmarried, and not related, are legally considered married if they publicly announce that they're married three times. So basically, they would walk into, you know, I don't know, maybe the saloon and say, we're married, we're married, we're married. I don't know. I feel like Beetlejuice would really be proud of all these Texans. Yeah, exactly. It kind of reminds me of this thing that my mom told me. That like back way back when, like, I don't know, 15, 1600s, something like that. A man could be like, I divorced thee, I divorced thee, I divorced thee. And you were suddenly divorced. But only the man could do that. The woman could not. That's also a practice in Islam as well. It's called triple talaq. And it's kind of considered this reprehensible form of divorce by just declaring that you're divorced from your wife. Huh. 
I actually, I own a copy of the Quran and I've never read it. Well, I won't tell anyone. It's really weird though, because it's one of those, like, it's a religious text. So it's kind of weird to see that it's the Penguin Classics edition. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Cool. <sighs> That's all I really have for uh, wacky laws in Texas. Like, surprisingly, you think there'd be a lot more crazy laws in Texas, but they're all, they're all pretty much the... The tried and true crazy laws we're used to, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, very much so. I mean, no more ice cream, but that's yeah. fine. Yeah. I guess they're not worried about people stealing horses in Texas with ice Ex- cream cones. We're getting out west, and that was more of the south thing, so. True. True, true, true. All righty, so you have uh, one hell of a story for me this week. I do have one hell of a story. So today we're heading to the central Texas town of cisco now that thong the thong 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 (laughs) for real that was a soundtrack as i took my notes oh my god uh the city of cisco sorry i think i called it a town there a second ago it's a city uh it's at the crossroads of u.s highway 183 and interstate 20 it's pretty small it only has a population of 3800 people and the city limits stretch about five square miles. Originally called Red Gap when the area was settled way back in 1879, it was renamed Cisco in 1881 after the residents decided that they wanted to move their settlement a little bit closer to the newly completed intersection of the Houston-Texas Central Railway and the Texas Pacific Railway. Okay. Uh, It turned out to be a pretty good idea, moving to a... Railroad crossroads really made it more of a whistle-stop town, so Cisco kept on growing through the end of the 19th century, and its economy expanded from farming to include things like cattle ranching, mineral mining, and light manufacturing since they were so close to the railway. Very cool. Mm-hmm. Now, the Texas oil boom that happened in the early 20th century kind of swept through the state in stages, and it hit this part of central Texas during the 1920s. And of course, Cisco got swept up in it. The city saw its population jump to 15,000 residents between 1919 and 1921. And that big jump of people coming and settling in Cisco caused the local officials to decide to officially incorporate the city in 1921. Hmm. Now, this population boom worsened a longstanding issue that Cisco had, and that was a poor water supply. Um, So after they incorporated, the city was able to address this issue by building the Williamson Dam just north of town. Uh, The resulting water reservoir is known as Lake Cisco today. Interestingly, at the base of the dam, the city decided to really go for it since they spent all this money on a dam and they built a recreational complex. Uh, this just seems like the like a weird but uniquely Texan idea to me. They built this recreation complex, and it included a swimming pool that they built as the largest concrete swimming pool in the world when it was completed in 1923. Wow. Okay. Yep. And I am very into swimming, so that's something that I'm very much excited about. Right. Doesn't that sound heavenly? It's like you're in central it Texas. It's hot as hell, and you're like a massive swimming pool. Mm. Exactly. Swimming pools are a must in the South. Mm-hmm. So aside from the pool, they also built a small park, a little zoo, an amusement park with rides for the kids, and a two-story building that was used as a skating rink on the second floor. So it's basically the one-stop shop for your family outing in the city of Cisco. Oh, wow. Convenient. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, this is a major attra- local attraction for the area of Central Texas for several decades, but eventually it closes to the public in 1970. Um, and that's pretty much all that there is to Cisco. It's a very tiny town still to this day. There isn't a whole lot going on. Um, it is close to the county seat of Eastland. So that's where a lot of people will go to get dinner and go shopping, that sort of thing. Okay. Now, I did find two other notable items about the city of Cisco, however. The first one, it's the hometown of Daryl Dash Croft, one half of the soft rock band Seals and Croft. I thought that's what you were going to say. <laughs> yep. So aside from the thong song, I also had Summer Breeze. Make me feel fine. Yes. <laughs> so like soft rock and Cisco. That's what I had wow. in my head all week. Yep. What yep. a combination. <laughs> Second notable thing about Cisco. It was the scene of the most holly but not so jolly bank robbery in 1927. Today's story is the Cisco Santa Claus bank robbery. What the fuck? Yep, a.k.a., as I like to call it, the most Texan bank robbery ever. That's pretty awesome. (laughs) Eden, this story has everything. Wild gunfights, kidnapping, car chases, a desperate run through a Texas oil field, and of course, some dude who decided it was a good idea to dress up as Santa Claus and rob a bank. Very nice. Well, we've seen how well dressing up as Santa works before, so. Yeah, it's not the the best plan for uh, criminal enterprises, that's for sure. Nope. So before I get into the details of our super exciting Texas-sized bank robbery story today, I did want to talk a little bit more about bank robbery in general in the 1920s, just to kind of give you a picture. Um, So before I do that, Eden, when I tell you 1920s bank robbery, what do you think of? What do you picture? Um, I'm kind of picturing the mob. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, I definitely imagine someone being like, this is a stick-up, see? (laughs) <laughs> totally like a gangster prohibition style. Yeah. For sure. Uh you're you're pretty much dead on. Like this is the 1920s. It's the era where prohibition leads to this rise of organized criminals. The FBI gets formed. They start declaring people public enemies. Uh, we also see the rise of a lot of famous 20th century outlaws like John Dillinger, Bonnie and Clyde, Pretty Boy Floyd, and Machine Gun Kelly. Not the rapper. Not the rapper, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and it's it's kind of like the the heyday of like that bank robbery like outlaw. Exactly. Like that's the thing that I love about like, oh, let's just make this illegal and no one will ever do it again. Nope, it just gets more violent and more crazy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It just leads to other problems you never even realize would pop up. Exactly. So the 1920s saw this like epidemic of bank robberies, especially in the South and the in the Midwest. In addition to all the crimes associated with prohibition, uh, there were two main factors that I could see that led to this dramatic increase in bank robberies during this period. One of them is the collapse of farm pricing, and the other is the increased availability of the automobile. Generally, when we think about the 1920s, we're always told it's the Roaring Twenties. It was a big economic boom time for most Americans. And that is true. But there's also this other thing that happened to American farmers. And that was that their far- the price they could charge for farm goods drastically started to drop during the 1920s. So basically, American farmers really made out well during World War I because the European agricultural market was completely destroyed given the war. After the war ends, 
the European farming industry recovers way, way more quickly than American farmers predicted. So as a result, American farmers saw a 73% decrease in their income between 1920 and 1921. Huh. Okay. So they took a huge loss. And it was kind of sad because like during World War One, they were making so much money, a lot of farmers started expanding and building up their business. But then as soon as the war ends and 1920 hits, basically prices just tank and you can't afford the expansion that you may have entered into for your farm. Yeah. Now they still made money in the 20s, but they never really recovered to that previous uh, high price before the Great Depression hit. And as we all know, the Great Depression really, really devastates the American farmer. Oh, yeah, because, I mean, the 20s, I love the 20s, but it was like the decade of excess. And then right afterwards, it's like, bam, no one has any money. Depression time. Yeah, yeah. Coincidentally, most of these farms that lost money during the 1920s were located in the South and Midwest. So naturally, people in those areas were hurting more economically and starting to grow desperate. The second factor at the rise of the automobile is another thing that kind of happened in the 1920s that we haven't previously seen in America before this period. So in 1920, there were 8 million new vehicle registrations in the U.S. By 1929, the number had almost tripled to 23 million new registrations. So basically, anybody who could afford a car got a car in the 20s. Huh. That sounds pretty much like what I expected. Yep. Yep. And you think these this abundance of you know, cars, readily available transportation, mixed with people who've fallen on really hard times economically, it makes it pretty clear that crime's going to jump and evolve. And a lot of folks who were looking to make some fast money decided, hey, why not rob a bank? If you had now a car. I have my fun getaway car, yeah. Exactly, exactly. You have a car, you can get in, you can get out quick, you have a getaway car. Plus, if you hit a bank in a more rural area, the chances are there's only a couple law enforcement officers in that part of the country or part of the county, and you can really easily evade them. Yeah, I could definitely see that. So by the late 1920s, banks in Texas were being robbed at a rate of three or four per day. Holy crap. Yep. And most of the people who robbed them were not captured. Okay. Well, I mean, I guess it was kind of like a a new thing for them with this, you know, with cars and everything. So Mm -hmm. a little different from what they're used to. Yeah, exactly. Now, this is what set the scene for the Santa Claus bank robbery, which actually precipitated it in one of the largest manhunts in Texas history, which is another fun little fact about this case. Wow. Mm-hmm. So, when Marshall Ratliff was paroled after robbing a bank in Valera, Texas, he immediately set about planning his next bank job. He was 24 years old, and he had previously lived in Cisco for a time and was pretty familiar with the city especially the layout of the First National Bank of Cisco. Initially, Ratliff decided to recruit his brother, who he'd also partnered with during his previous bank robbery in Valera. He also recruited two men that he had met while serving time in Huntsville, Texas, Henry Helms, who was 31, and Robert Hill, who was 21. I know the name Robert Hill for some reason. I feel like it's a pretty common name. Although it also is Bobby Hill from King of the Hill, so maybe that's it. Who knows? (laughs) Which is also set in Texas. (laughs) <laughs> oh my god it is now i just picture bobby bobby get in the car <laughs> that boy ain't right <laughs> that, that boy ain't right come on man what you mean my man oh thanks boom <laughs> 
So Ratliff recruits uh, Hill and Helms along with his brother, and he decides that the first national bank in Cisco is the perfect place for them to hit because it has a vault. So he also finds a safe cracker who can hopefully break into the vault so that they can get an even bigger payday with this heist. Now, from the start, Ratliff's plan hits some bumps. The first big bump is that Lee, his brother, gets arrested after committing a burglary. Second, the safecracker he recruited comes down with the flu three or four days before they were set to rob the bank. Hmm. Undeterred, Ratliff pulls in Louis Davis, a 22-year-old relative of Henry Helms, who is desperately in need of money to support his young family. During the week of December 19th, 1927, the group meet up in Wichita Falls to secure guns and transportation to Cisco. Realizing that he'd probably be recognized instantly as soon as he set foot in Cisco, Ratliff needed a disguise. And Santa is the obvious choice. Of it course. is the obvious choice because the landlady at the boarding house they were staying at just happened to have an extra Santa suit on hand. <laughs> <laughs> Why is this happening? I know, I know. Texas, that's why. In the early morning hours of Friday, December 23rd, the men steal a car in Wichita Falls and drive the 200 miles to Cisco. They arrive around noon and Ratliff dons his Santa suit. Now, of course, it's December 23rd. The city is decked out for the holidays. The main streets packed with people either going about their normal daily business and also even more people who are out and about wrapping up those last-minute holiday errands that everybody always has. The men drop Ratliff off a few blocks from the bank and then proceed to park their car that will be used as the getaway car in the alley behind the bank, and they also head out onto the streets to blend in. Ratliff decides, hey, might as well mingle with some folks. I am Santa, after all. And he starts strutting down the sidewalk, and he stops to chat with like curious children who, of course, see Santa Claus and get all excited. Most of the adults on the street just figure it's probably some kind of, you know, store promotion or just like a local citizen in the holiday spirit. Nobody thinks it's odd whatsoever. And he just continues walking down the street, chatting with kids. Uh, According to one of my sources, they said that there was so much holiday spirit in the air that some of the kids even started following Ratliff down the street, wanting to tell them what they wanted for Christmas. (laughs) Oh, All I want for Christmas is for people to stop dressing up as Santa and doing bad things. Uh, You're ruining it for everybody. Ruining it. (laughs) So Ratliff is like heading towards the bank. He has this like cavalcade of children following him. His disguise is working way too well at this point. When he enters into the bank, that's also when his accomplices follow quickly behind him. Inside the bank, the cashier greets him with a bright, hello, Santa, which Ratliff ignores and proceeds oh, to no. walk. Oh, <laughs> no. Yes. They know his identity now. Mm-hmm. They know it's Santa. <laughs> Helpful tip, gang. If you ever say, hello, Santa, and that Santa does not respond, you're about to encounter some trouble with Santa. Yes. At least this one doesn't have a flamethrower that we know of, though. It's true, true. He does not have a flamethrower. I can, I can spoil or alert you with that. There's no flamethrower in this episode. Good. <laughs> now, Ratliff ignores the cashier. He goes to the desk in the middle of the lobby, you know, where people like run out their deposit slips and stuff. And the cashier again goes, hello, Santa. 
as Helms, Hill, and Davis enter the bank with their pi- and pull out their pistols. Uh, according to some sources, Ratliff also pulled out a pistol at this time and jumped onto the desk and told people to stick their hands in the air. Uh, other sources said that as the me- other accomplices swept in, Robert Hill actually orders the cashier to put his hands up, and Ratliff sw- pushes his way through the swinging door into the cashier's security cage. He orders the cashier to open the safe, and he starts stuffing money into a sack he had hidden in- underneath his costume. Oh my god. Yeah. People are just going to think it's a bundle of presents. I know, right? It's literally Santa's loot bag. <laughs> I can't do this anymore. I'm converting to Judaism. <laughs> now, while the other bank robbers cover the customers and employees, Ratliff continues to grab money. He goes to each teller window and grabs the cash out of their drawer. And then he grabs one of the tellers and forces them to open the vault. Meanwhile. Six-year-old Francine Blessingame and her mother were passing the bank as Ratliff entered. The girl insisted that they had to go in and see Santa. Of course. Yeah, of course. Why wouldn't a six-year-old want that? Uh, her mother, Mrs. P.B. Blessingame, agreed. What the hell kind of a last name is that? I don't know. It sounds German, Blessingame. It probably, but it's very strange. It is. I had to, like triple check my spelling i'm like it's not blessinger no no blessing game that's weird so little francis's mom agrees to go into the bank and as they go in they're just kind of like you know going about their regular friday holiday friday they're not aware the bank's being robbed as soon as they walk in though mrs blessing game realizes that it's being robbed and they're in danger and then she does the most badass true texas steel magnolia thing ever she drinks her juice no, no. <laughs> she straightens her shoulders, grabs her little girl's hands, and then charges her way through the bank into the bank bookkeeping office and says, they're robbing the bank. Uh-huh. <laughs> and informs the bookkeeper that they're robbing the bank. And then she quickly unlocks the side door to the alley and bursts through with her daughter in tow. <laughs> wow. Yes. So like, she is such like a force of nature that the robbers are like, hey, what? And before they can even stop her, they like threaten, don't move, we'll shoot. Before they can even get a shot off, she is gone and she starts running down the street. That's amazing. I know. How like I I'm like, I kind of love her for just being like, nope, gotta get out of this one. Yeah. <laughs> so Mrs. Blessing Game is like running down the street alerting people. Uh some reports that she was screaming that they were robbing the bank. And she runs the one block to the police station. There, she notifies the police chief, uh, G.E. Bedford, and he has two officers on duty with him, R.T. Redice and George Carmichael. Uh, All three of them grab what they need, so they grab like some shotguns and rifles, and they head to the bank. Meanwhile, the citizens of Cisco, who could see the robbers through the plate glass window of the bank, start to gather. Now, this being Texas, many of them are already armed. And those who aren't armed rush to a nearby hardware store to grab any rifles and pistols that the hardware store has on hand. So there's this other little factor I didn't tell you about, Eden. And it's also a factor that Ratliff forgot about when he was making his plan to rob the bank. A few months prior, in the fall of 1927, the Texas Bankers Association had enough of the rampant bank robberies. So they decided to establish the Dead Bank Robber Reward Program. What? (laughs) Yep, it's as bad as it sounds. So this program offered a cash reward of $5,000 to any citizen who could kill a person in the act of robbing a bank. 
I mean, what could go wrong? It's the perfect plan, right? Oh, yes, because vigilante justice is wonderful. Yes. No offense, Batman. <laughs> Sorry, Batman. Like $5,000 in, in like 1927, that's a big chunk of change. You're talking probably yeah. closer to the equivalent of like sixty or $70,000 in today's money, if not more. What year was it? 1927. 1927. Okay. I will find out for us. Okay. Calculate. Uh, okay. $75,578.74. Oh my God. That's like rewarding somebody for killing a human being. Yeah. That's literally what this program does. Um, is this law still in effect today? Because I'm ahead to Texas. I need the cash. <laughs> I don't believe the dead bank robbers program is still an active program, Eden, but you could contact the Texas Bankers Association to confirm that. I'll have to do that as soon as we're done recording. <laughs> so this is where my sources start to conflict a little bit. But I do know this. Someone fired a shot that hit the plate glass windows of the First National Bank of Cisco. And then that shot actually triggered a shootout between the robbers inside the bank, the police who had stationed themselves in the back alley behind the back to cut off the robbers when they escaped out the back, and the citizens of Cisco who were in front of the bank armed to the teeth. Holy crap. You yep. just got this angry mob. Yep. <laughs> what can go wrong? Nothing can go wrong at this point. Merry Christmas, Cisco. <laughs> Jesus. So some accounts said that Ratliff actually was the one who fired the shot as either like a silent signal to other people who might be hidden accomplices, but that's not true. There weren't any other hidden accomplices or more likely to cause a distraction so the bank robbers could escape out of the back uh, of the bank. Uh, another source I found said that Robert Hill was actually looking out the window and saw somebody armed approaching the bank as to, to come inside the bank. So he fired at the window to scare that person and then into the ceiling as like a warning that all the robbers inside the bank were armed. Uh, dang got, it, Bobby. Dang it, Bobby. People outside have guns too. <laughs> it's Texas. Everyone has a fucking gun. I know. Either way, uh, the armed citizens on the street open on fire and the robbers return fire. Uh, meanwhile, as they start to return fire to the people on the street shooting at them, they start hurting the remaining bank employees and patrons towards the rear of the bank and that back door to the alley. During this shootout uh, in the bank, Ratliff and Hill are wounded, but they're still able-bodied enough to return fire and move about and like hurt people. Uh, Police Chief Bedford and Officer Carmichael have positioned themselves in the alley, and as the robbers try to leave the bank, they start firing at them. So basically, these bank robbers are getting it from both sides. Damn. There was a joke in there somewhere. <laughs> there a was a joke. dirty joke. There. Yes, there was. Uh, so what is a bank robber to do now that you're, you know, pinned down, essentially? Getting it from both ends. Getting it from both ends. Pinned down and getting it from both ends. What, it, <laughs> it just gets better. <laughs> so they still have 16 bank employees and patrons that they're using as hostages so they're like you know what these folks will probably make a fine human shield and that's what they do they force all of the people in the bank with them into the alley oh jesus and then they grab two young girls who were only about 12 and 10 at the time and use them as human shields as they scramble towards the getaway car who are probably like, why, Santa? Why? Is it because I asked for a pony? <laughs> for real. After the story broke, like that Christmas in 1927, like kids all over the county in that region of central Texas were like devastated 
oh to the point God. where like they would ask Santas they would <gasps> see on the street why 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 did you rob that bank Santa? Oh my God, yeah. that's great and horrible. I it's, love it. Yep, yep. So most of these hostages manage to, of course, like make a break for it and they escape in the chaos of gunfire. Several hostages are, of course, hit by crossfire, including the bank president. Meanwhile, uh, Robert Lewis Davis, police chief Bedford, and officer Carmichael are all mortally wounded in this shootout in the alley. Um, six other citizens of Cisco, probably the folks in the front who were firing into the bank, were also wounded. All in all, over 200 shots were fired between the robbers, police, and citizens. Holy shit. Yeah, it was a for real shootout. Thankfully, it was back in the 1920s as opposed to today when we have like semi and fully automatic weapons because it would have been just a much more devastating casualty count, right? Somehow, Ratliff, Helms, and Hill managed to get the wounded Davis, the cash, and their two girl hostages into the getaway car and out of the alley. They turn out onto the main road and people continue shooting at them. (laughs) (laughs) As you do when there's $5,000 in 1920s money on the line. Exactly. Exactly. They do manage to make it away from the bank, and as they're starting to head out of town, they realize that the car is almost out of gas and that one of their tires is now flat, probably shot out by the police or some of the vigilante citizen. Yes. So, yeah. Again, there's a little variation in in the sources I found. Some of them were kind of like, oh, these guys were so dumb, they didn't even bother to fill their tank. Others said, no, they were being shot at, and the gas tank probably got hit in the gunfire and was leaking. Either way, they needed a new car and fast. Uh, Ratliff spots a Oldsmobile heading in their direction and gets out of the getaway car, still dressed as Santa Claus, mind you. And he stops the car. Uh, The car is being driven by 14-year-old Woodrow Wilson, a.k.a. Woody Harris. Woody Harrelson? I know. That's what I read the first. I was like, Woody Harrelson, what? (laughs) No, Woody Harris, who quickly surrenders the vehicle and scampers away. Uh, a makeshift posse of citizens led by Officer Redice is quickly approaching the group, and they start to open fire as the robbers start to transfer the loot, the wounded Louis Davis, and their hostages to the Oldsmobile. Finally, they all clamber in, and Ratliff climbs into the driver's seat of the Oldsmobile, and that's when he realized that Woody Harris has foiled their plans. The kid managed to turn the car off and take the keys with him when he left the car. Oh, my God. <laughs> like, what a, like, what a clever guy. I'm like, good for you. Good for you. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> so having no choice with the posse bearing down on them, uh, Harris, Helms, and Hill have moved back to their original get- getaway car with their hostages. Helms is again shot uh, during this transfer back to their original car. And in their rush, they realize they can't move Davis. He's too badly wounded. And they kind of abandon him in the Oldsmobile. But they also forgot the money. What? Because they were in such a rush to get away. Yep. Oh, yep. my God. Uh, the story gets better and better. Yep. So the robbers are like, oh, well, let's go. We got to lose this posse. And they start to head back into town thinking they can run back into town, lose them through one of the many streets and turns, and then get out of town again. The posse reaches the Oldsmobile and they slow down. They capture Davis and they discover the money taken from the bank. Initially, the robbers had gotten away with $12,400 in cash and $50,000 in non-negotiable securities. In today's money, it would be about $180,000 in cash and $2.2 million in non-negotiable securities. So it was a pretty big bank haul. Oh, yeah. 
Uh, Officer Redis leaves some of the citizens with the wounded Davis and takes off after the robbers again. And as he's chasing them, he opens fire as soon as he gets close enough. During this exchange, Ratliff is again shot, but he continues to drive the getaway car. Holy crap. Yep. So they're racing through the streets of Cisco now, trying to get away from the cop. And eventually they turn into a dirt alley and then they cut across a pasture. Uh, and at this point, Rita starts to fall behind because his car just can't keep up uh, in the pasture. Uh, eventually it gets too hazardous. And rather than damage his vehicle, Rita ca- calls off the chase. The robbers continue until they basically destroy their car <laughs> and they have to abandon it. Uh, they leave the car and their two hostages. They did make it several miles from town, and they headed out into the Texas countryside on foot. So word spreads about this bank robbery in Cisco. Civilians who also hope to cash in on this $5,000 dead robbers reward and law enforcement officers from nearby towns start to descend on the location where the robbers abandoned their car. This becomes the first phase of the manhunt that would become one of the largest in Texas history over the holidays. So it's Friday afternoon. The search parties fan out in the hilly grasslands between Cisco and the next town over, Putnam. Ratliff, Helms, and Hill were able to evade the search parties for a couple more days. Eventually, they commandeer another car and take its driver, Carl Wiley, hostage. Unfortunately for them, Wiley's father witnesses his abduction, and he fires a shotgun after them and strikes his son. So now they have a wounded hostage as well. Oh, my God. So these guys are like, all right, let's go back into the hills and hide out for a little bit longer, and then we'll figure, figure something out. So they're hiding out, and it's super cold, and it starts to sleet because it's December in the hills of central Texas. And they're all wounded. They, they're not doing very well, especially Ratliff. He's in, he's in pretty bad shape. And they don't have anything to eat other than some oranges. So they decide the next day that they are going to head to South Bend, Texas, which is a, a town about 50 miles from Cisco. They abandon uh, Wiley and his car and steal another car. Uh, as they head to South Bend, the local sheriff, however, spots the gun coding trio as they tread across the Brazo River. Uh, he quickly calls in reinforcements, and there's a hot pursuit yet again. So this is now car chase number two. Oh, my God. It never stops. It never stops in Texas. So the sheriff's chasing the robbers. Uh, Eventually, their car takes too much damage, and they end up coming to a stop in a Texas oil field. And the police think that these guys are going to do one last crazy stand. So they kind of stop their cars as well and set up some cover for themselves in case the trio open fires. Sure enough, uh, the three guys clamber out of the car and they start firing at the police and then they try to run for the hills, or in this case, the woods near the Brazo River. Unfortunately, or perhaps fortunately, Ratliff gets heavily wounded. There's a couple reports saying that he was shot and he kind of fell to his knees and got up again and got shot again and then like kind of collapsed on the ground. <laughs> How many times has he been shot by now? Because that's like probably the fourth time or something. Well, as, as they take Ratliff into custody, they realize he's been shot a total of six times. Oh, my God. Over the course of the, you know, the five days they were on the lam. And he has six pistols on him. Oh, that's overkill. Yeah, a little bit of overkill. He's the one that was just a Santa, right? Yep, he's the one that's just a Santa. Yeah. My God. That sack was loaded. Loaded sack. Lots, lots of naughty, naughty treasures in that sack. Love me a good loaded sack. 
So the police capture Ratliff. However, Helms and Hill get away. They are apprehended only three days later on December 30th in the town of Graham with basically no resistance. Uh, According to the arresting officers, the bandits were, quote, riddled with bullets and were on their last legs, and they just basically gave up. When the men were brought to trial, Henry Helms is identified as the shooter responsible for killing officers Bedford and Carmichael. And as a result, he's given the death penalty. He's executed in the electric chair September 6, 1929, despite trying to get out of it by farning insanity. Not surprising for Texas. It's a killing state. It is indeed. Robert Hill pled guilty to armed robbery. He begged for mercy. Begged for mercy, Bobby. And and received a sentence of 99 years. Uh, He went on to escape from prison at least twice. Peggy must be so upset. Uh, he w- and uh, after his two escape attempts, though, he was a model citizen and was eventually paroled in the mid-1940s. Uh, after his parole, Hill ended up changing his name and becoming a productive citizen. He was never in trouble with the law again, and he eventually passed away in 1996. Wow. Now, that just leaves us with Marshall Ratliff, the last Robert standing, and the mastermind. He was convicted of armed robbery and abduction on January 27, 1928, and was also sentenced to 99 years in prison. Months later, on March 30th, he was also sentenced to death for his role in the deaths of Officer Bedford and Carmichael. Even though he wasn't the shooter, he was convicted because he had facilitated and caught, like, basically the one who planned the bank robbery and caused their death. He appealed this death sentence and it failed. Uh, And once it started to fail and his accomplice Helms was executed, he started behaving really oddly in the hopes of firming up an insanity plea. So the day Helms is executed, that's when his jailers notice that he starts acting like he can't see or that he's partially paralyzed or even catatonic. The people of Cisco are so furious at the possibility (laughs) that this brazen bank robber who not only killed the well-liked police chief but ruined santa claus for all of their children oh exactly yes right this guy might actually escape punishment so they're furious Uh, a local judge in cisco issues a bench warrant for ratliff on the charges of stealing woody harris's osmobile so he gets moved back to the jail in cisco well that's good at least they found something Mm -hmm. they found something to bring him on back so He's brought from Huntsville to Cisco, and he continues to act. He continues to act crazy and catatonic. And apparently, Ratliff's a pretty good actor because his jailers, Pat Kilborn and Tom Jones, believe him. And these two men work together to feed, bathe. Tom Jones yes, is in Tom, this story too. Tom Jones, Tom A. Jones, nicknamed Uncle Tom by the people in town. Wow. Yeah. These guys are basically. Feed, bathe, and assist Ratliff with using the toilet while he's quote unquote catatonic. So they truly, truly believe that he is uh, crazy. I believe he's faking it. Mm-hmm. He is faking it, Eden. You're one smart cookie. When his jailer's guard is down, obviously, because they think he's crazy, Ratliff manages to grab a pistol from one of the guards' desks and he tries to escape. Of he- course he does. Yep, because he's a desperate Texan. He ends up shooting and killing Jones, and then 
gets into a violent physical melee with Kilburn. Now, super horrifying to me, at least, is that the people in the town hear the shots and they race to the jail. And they see this struggle between Kilburn and Ratliff through the jailhouse windows, but they can't get in because the cell block is locked. So basically, they just see him like trying to overpower Ratliff and Ratliff with a wielding a gun trying to get a shot off at him. Oh, my God. Eventually, uh, Kilburn's able to overpower Ratliff and he beats him unconscious and drags him back into his cell. The next morning, uh, a crowd of citizens in Cisco starts to gather, and by nightfall, it's grown to nearly 2,000 people, all of them who are clamoring for Ratliff's blood. Now, Pat Kilborn, to his credit, refuses their demand to turn Ratliff over, but he is overpowered when 15 to 20 men rush into the jail and drag Ratliff out of his cell. Okay, so more of this... Now, great. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They tie his hands and feet, carry him to a vacant lot behind the Majestic Theater on Mulberry Street, where the play The Noose is being presented. Then they throw a rope over a guy wire between two telephone poles and try to hang Ratliff. Or I should say, try to lynch Ratliff, because that's essentially what they're doing. The first noose fails, and Ratliff falls to the ground. The mob gets some stronger rope and tie a new knot, and they finally are able to hoist Ratliff 15 feet into the air. He's pronounced dead 20 minutes later at 9.55 on November 19th. Authorities come by, and they order, him, they order the crowd to disperse, and they cut him down. By way of making him even more of a public example in Cisco, the authorities, who are still pretty pissed off about the murder of Chief Bedford, Display Ratliff's corpse in a... I knew you were going to say it. I knew it. (laughs) In a furniture store the next day. A furniture store? Yep. He's in the front window of the furniture store uh, for one day. And then he's... The next day, he's... After that display, he's turned over to the city morgue. Oh, my God. No one's ever charged in connection with his lynching. And that is the most Texas bank robbery I could find. That was certainly something. Isn't that nuts? That's a holy crap. So he's just like sitting on a lazy boy recliner, just corpsey. <laughs> Maybe. I you know what I kind of picture? Comfortable and corpsey. I kind of picture like the the old West uh movies or pictures of the old West where they catch an outlaw and they kind of prop him up in front of like the the mortuary. Yeah. Like, that's what I picture. Cause I'm like, again, this is like a super Texas tale. It gives me flashbacks to my Minnesota haunting story. With putting the girl's oh, yeah. body on display. Yeah, and yeah. all the other kids had to go, ugh, look at it, gross. I mean, this is a lot less sad, but... No. <laughs> this is so. about pure Texas vengeance. <laughs> oh, yes. So, yeah, that is the Santa Claus bank robbery. Uh, Eden, thoughts, feelings, concerns, questions? All of those. <laughs> um, there's so much going on in the story. There's... I. Wow. I'm at a loss for words because that was just incredibly crazy from start to finish. And I just don't know what I can even say about it. Wow. I just feel like I'm surprised I've never heard of this. Apparently it's no. still it's still like local legend and like people are like, my grandpa was there at the bank. It's like that, you know, thing you brag about. <laughs> That's weird. But yeah, it's wow. it's a nutty story and I'm shocked no one's ever tried to make a movie of it or something. No, it would be a great movie. Uh, my sources for this week's episode were Wikipedia, Mental Floss, The Texan.news, 
ushistory.org, eh.net, and the New York Times. Thank you, Nicole. That's actually one of my favorite stories you've ever told. Thanks. Thanks. Well, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, I'll have some weird news for you guys. And I will also have a story. Surprise, surprise. (laughs) We'll see you then. And we're back. Hey, buddy. I don't know why I sound like Matthew McConaughey in that, but whatever. That that was a little, yeah, a little Matthew McConaughey. <laughs> oh, oh, God. Every time I think about his character in what was the movie called? Dazed and Confused? Yeah. I get really, really creeped out. As you should. <laughs> well, I have a news article. And as I mentioned, it takes place in Texas. And it comes from The Guardian, which is a source I actually know. Mm. It is, Texas lawyer trapped by cat filter on Zoom call informs judge he is not a cat. (laughs) I've heard of this. (laughs) So, a Texas lawyer accidentally left a kitten filter on during a video conference call with a judge and was unable to change it, eventually responding to a judge's query about why he was being addressed by a digital feline by saying, I'm here live, I am not a cat. (laughs) The coronavirus has prompted many computer mishaps as many of the world's workers adapt to working from home in the face of the pandemic. They have ranged from the inadvertently hilarious to the career-ending. But lawyer Rod Ponton's accidental morphing into a wide-eyed baby cat (laughs) appears destined to achieve viral immortality. Faced with hearing legal debate from the kitten's cute but worried face, Judge Roy Ferguson of Texas's 394th Judicial District told Ponton, I believe you have a filter turned on in the video settings. You might want to, the Ponton slash kitten entity, then interrupts Ferguson in a panicked drawl. Can you hear me, Judge? Ferguson responds, I hear you. I think it's a filter. It is, the cat face Ponton responds. And I don't know how to remove it. I've got my assistant here. She's trying to, but I'm prepared to go forward with it. I'm here live. I'm not a cat. I'm here live. I am not a cat. (laughs) Ferguson deadpants. I can see that. And then in the manner of good judges everywhere, Ferguson sought to use the example of human slash feline fallibility as a teachable moment. He tweeted, if a child used your computer before you join a virtual hearing, check the Zoom video options to be sure the filters are off. He added, these fun moments are a byproduct of the legal profession's dedication to ensuring that the justice system continues to function in these tough times. Everyone involved handled it with dignity and the filtered lawyer showed incredible grace. True professionalism all around. (laughs) That's way better of a story than the one about the boss who like turned herself into a potato. Oh, yes. Because literally it's a court proceeding. So it has to be like captured as part of the court records. Like, can you imagine like the the court reporter, recorder? Just like, God. And then the cat said, (laughs) (laughs) I am not a, I am not a cat. Put his name down as Mr. Snuggles instead. (laughs) Thank you for that story, Eden. I had forgotten about it. And I actually never read too closely into it. I just giggled at the headline and the picture. Yeah, I had never read it. Like, I kept seeing it pop up on Facebook. And then I was like, all right, I'm going to save this and use it on the podcast. And it was a perfect episode because Texas. Because Texas. 
Alrighty. I do have a story. Excellent, excellent. My story for this week takes place in Yorktown, Texas, which is a place I had never heard of before. It's in DeWitt County, which is in the southeast part of Texas, and because of the county name, I can't stop thinking about Janet from Three's Company now. <laughs> Joyce DeWitt, where have you been? Exactly. It's a pretty small town of only 2,092 people and an area of a little less than two square miles, so it's very much an if-you-blink-you-miss-it town. Mm. Although it is listed as a city, which I always think of cities as being bigger than towns. It was founded by Captain John York and Charles Eckhart uh, sometime in the 1830s, which I gathered from contacts clues because Wikipedia failed me this week. As you can tell from those statistics, uh, there will yet again not be much of an intro in the usual way that I like to do my intros, because there ain't shit to see here. There are, however, two notable people from this little itty-bitty city. There are Harlan Block, who is one of the soldiers in the photograph raising the flag on Iwo Jima, hmm. which is like a famous photo of like six Marines placing a flag atop uh, Mount Suribachi. Uh, during the Battle of Iwo Jima. The photograph, besides being this very iconic image a lot of people can recognize, also has the distinction of being the only picture to win the Nobel Prize for photography in the same year it was taken. So that's pretty cool. Hmm. It is cool. The other person of note from this town is Ox Eckert. I'm not sure if he is related to Charles Eckert, but he was an outfielder for the Brooklyn Dodgers. Uh, and obviously, if you follow baseball, uh, you'll know that that team does not exist in that state anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so, like I said, this is a very small town with not a lot going on, but it does have one major draw, which is the subject of today's story, the Yorktown Memorial Hospital. Okay. So the Yorktown Memorial Hospital was built in 1851, which was only one year after its construction, which was in 1950. There really isn't too much to tell about the hospital itself as a building. I couldn't find too much about it or any real specs, but I do know from my research that it was a small hospital. I looked at some pictures, which I regret doing since they were pretty creepy, and I wanted to get a feel for the size of this place. So it's uh, it's like a cross-shaped uh, building. Okay. Uh, the main the main part of the hospital is two stories, uh, but the wings are one story. It's definitely not the kind of hospitals that we see today. Later in my research, I actually was able to find some square footage of the building, and it's even smaller than I thought it would be. It totaled 30,000 square feet. That's all. I've seen homes in Beverly Hills that are bigger than that. Mm -hmm. The warehouse that I currently work in is 500,000 square feet. So this hospital is approximately 1 16th of my warehouse, if my math is right. Um... To make matters worse, the whole top floor that I mentioned was just living space and not even part of the actual hospital. That was like the nunnery portion of it. Oh, wow. So this is like super tiny. Yeah. Um, so I was mostly looking for pictures of the outside, but I unfortunately saw some pictures of the inside and it left me feeling pretty unsettled. But I guess it's just how abandoned buildings are. And I think everyone will agree with me that abandoned hospitals are some of the worst. Mm-hmm. One room in particular that freaked me out was this room that looked completely torn apart with like just a metal frame of a hospital bed with no mattress and a bunch of motherfucking dolls lying around. Dear nope. God, why? 
Nope. That's a big nope. Exactly. So anyway, the hospital was built because there weren't any other hospitals in that area at the time, and they needed something since this was uh, during the Korean War. And the closest hospital was in San Antonio, which is an hour and a half away. Oh, damn. Yeah, they had another hospital, but it closed down. I don't remember why, because I found that after I was pretty much finished with my notes. Mm -hmm. So I, I didn't end up putting it in, I don't think. Um, this place was run by a group of nuns called the Felician Sisters. I had never heard of them. Have you, Nicole? No, that doesn't sound familiar at all. Yeah. Well, I looked them up, and it says that they're a group of international Catholic nuns uh, with uh, ranks uh, over a 1,000. Oh, wow. They do ministry in a bunch of different countries, according to their website, including the U.S., Canada, Haiti, Brazil, Poland, Italy, England, France, Kenya, Estonia, Russia, Ukraine, and the Amazon. And that's probably a good thing, because people at Amazon need Jesus. I'm, like, shocked I've never heard of these nuns. Yeah, I, I haven't either. Like, I feel like a um, bad Catholic. I mean, I know I'm a bad Catholic, but... Oh, yeah, know, me too. I don't need to feel, feel that way about it. <laughs> exactly. Uh, they were actually founded in Poland in the mid-19th century and came to America in 1874, originally going to Wisconsin. But from the, um, the start of this town, they had had their presence in Texas. Okay. So, like, they've always been a fixture of this little town in Texas. Correct. On the hospital's Wikipedia page, which told me next to nothing this week, again, they said that the Felician sisters were, quote, inspired by the lives of St. Francis of Assisi, St. Clair, St. Felix of uh, someplace in Italy that I can't pronounce, Contalice. I don't know if that's correct, Contalice, and Blessed Mary Angela, end quote. Blessed Mary Angela is their founder, uh, from what I could find, and I think it's a little creepy referring to her as Blessed Mary Angela, and it makes them sound rather culty, but what do I know, right? But maybe she truly is blessed and has that official declaration in the Catholic Church, right? Isn't that like a thing on the on the I, path to sainthood? Or is that- I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I know when it. you become a saint, it's called beautification. Yeah. But I don't remember if there's like an actual title of blessed so-and-so or not. It just sounds really creepy. Yo, all I know is my Catholic understanding is way dusty. Oh, me too. Although I can still ace those quizzes on Facebook. <laughs> Ditto. <laughs> <laughs> so their name does come from one of the saints that I had mentioned in that little blurb I quoted, St. Felix, mm -hmm. whom I had also never heard of in my life. So I ended up looking him up too. And it seemed like he fits what this group of nuns set out to do, which is just helping the poor and needy which uh, the ones in Yorktown may or may not have done a very good job of, but I guess we'll find out together. Hooray! Creepy nuns! Oh, exactly, because this place needs more creep factor. Um, the hospital was only open for 35 years, and it closed down in 1986 when they built another hospital nearby. So, bye, Felicians. <laughs> How long were you sitting on that joke? Oh, actually, Damon came up with it, not me this time. <laughs> It was a good one. It's a good one. I like it. I like it. He blames himself and he feels very bad about it. But <laughs> I think so it's bad. funny. So in that time, however, um, it did have a lot of bad shit going on there. Like even though it was only there for 35 years. 
Yeah, I uh, guess it is kind of like smack dead in that terrible section of the 20th century where it's like, I don't know how to fix it. We don't really have pharmaceuticals. Electroshock? Yep. Maybe lobotomy. I don't know. Oh, yeah. So in the span of only six short years, there were reports of over 500 deaths in this building. Oh, my God. Which is, it's a lot for six years. My thought initially was maybe that they took in people who were going to die anyway to make them more comfortable for their last days. Um. And I hope at least that they had real doctors on staff and it wasn't just the nuns praying over them. I mean, they're not called the Christian scientist sisters. <laughs> uh, so when I went on to start researching the hauntings in this place, I found out that this, in fact, was a full service hospital with operating rooms and maternity services and everything. Oh, wow. It also had a brief stint as a drug rehab for two years before closing down again in 1988. I also found this weird story about a double murder taking place here involving a love triangle. Okay. Which you know I love those. I mean, who doesn't? Exactly. So the story changes a little depending on who tells it, but it's definitely true in some respect, or at least parts of it are true. I don't know. So the story goes that there was a love triangle between a nurse, a doctor, and a patient, or a nurse and two patients. That's the part that changes. One day, the nurse went with lover number one to the boiler room to get a little hot and heavy, no pun intended. Oh, you never go to the boiler room. Any horror <laughs> movie will teach you that. Exactly. Freddy's down there. You don't want that shit. Um, so the two were then caught by lover number two. And lover two stabs the nurse several times with a knife. And then once she's dead, the first guy ends up wrestling the knife away from number two and stabs him with it, killing him as well. Wow. Uh, the reason that I say there probably is at least some truth to the story is because there is still blood spatter on the walls of the boiler room to this day, and they've had that blood tested, and the testing proved it to be human blood. What? Yep. Ugh. Even if it's not true, that's still, like, very disturbing that there's, like, human blood splatter in the basement. Yeah. That's, like, mm -mm. I could see it throughout the rest of the hospital, but the boiler room? Yeah, it's nah. weird. I don't like that one mm. bit. You're not going to like any of this, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> so now that all that fun stuff is over and done with, we can get right down to the millions of creeptastic things that happen in this building. Hella haunted would be an understatement. So this is like uber hella haunted. There are, of course, weird sounds and people get a lot of EVP here. Uh, there are shadow people, which you know I hate because I'm way more familiar with them than I want to be. Mm-hmm. People have also seen figures with red glowing eyes. No fucking thank you. Yeah, that's a hard pass for me. Yeah. Uh, when you're in the lobby, you can apparently hear tapping on one of the glass doors, which I'm not exactly fond of either. But this... I am not a goldfish, okay? Yeah, no. But this next one is way creepier. So I'm going to send you a picture now, Nicole. It's that picture of the um, that one room that I told you about. Mm-hmm. Okay. And send. Now you can describe it in your own words. What the? What? what it, did I do something to offend you, Eden? <laughs> <laughs> this is such a creepy ass photo. Right? It is. It's like the metal frame of like a bed and like some creepy dolls and just like the walls are like all destroyed basically. Yep. Is, oh my God. There's so many dolls. And there's a doll head in the window that I just noticed and didn't see before. Ugh. 
So what I want you to do is look right at that picture mm-hmm. and stare right into one of those dolls' dead, soulless eyes for me, Nicole. Okay. Staring at the plastic pools of darkness, yeah. Okay. Now you're not going to sleep tonight. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hi, Mommy. Ah! Come play with me. Why don't you love me anymore, Mommy? That's right. These fucking evil pieces of shit murder dolls fucking talk. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Nope. No thanks. I don't know what they actually say, and they might just cry or something, but the words I used for you are what I imagine when I look at that picture. So you needed to feel my pain, Nicole. You needed to feel my pain. Listen, whatever I did, I'm sorry. <laughs> Honestly, like when I get into these stories, I want to be scared. I want to shit my pants. I want it to be so fucking scary that I have to borrow some diapers from Lisa Nowak. (laughs) And I was not disappointed this week, and I never want to sleep again after hearing this shit. Now, because you aren't scared enough if you hate dolls as much as I do, I have a bunch of very specific spirits for you now, too. Oh, grand, grand. First on our list is a doctor at the hospital named Dr. Norwierski. And I'm sorry, Polish people, because you know I cannot pronounce your name, so I might be pronouncing that wrong. Anyway, he was really old when he finally retired from working there. He was 90 years old, to be exact. He did not die in the hospital, so I don't know. but Wow, he uh, was 90, do- 90 years old and he's still doctoring. Yeah, well, mm, um... he wasn't very good good at his job from what i've learned and he slit the throat of a patient during a thyroid operation what? which yeah in case anyone was wondering that should never happen Mm-mm. he actually had a reputation for killing patients not on purpose but still not very good whoops the daisies yeah and his medical license at the time of his retirement was the oldest in the state of texas too which i just thought was an interesting fun fact wow I couldn't find any stories about what he does now that he's a ghost, but that was too crazy not to put in there. Mm -hmm. The most famous ghost in this whole place is the ghost of a little girl named Stacy. I don't know if her mom's got it going on or not, but I do know that you love your child ghost, Nicole. Oh, you know I do. So, Stacy is a little girl who I guess died in the hospital, but my sources weren't very specific about that part. I do know that she was given a book by Dr. Norwierski that was found in the hospital called The Pokey Little Puppy. Mm-hmm. It's her favorite book. And she seems to hang out a lot in the library and likes when you read that book to her or any book for that matter, but especially that one. Okay. Uh, don't even get me started on how creepy that statement is. <laughs> She'll, yeah. yeah. She'll also roll a ball with you if you'd like, which we've seen before from other child ghosts and stories. Mm -hmm. And then besides the library, you can also see her sometimes in her old hospital room on the first floor. And you can also hear her playing in the basement hallways. She's like all over the place. She is. That's very unsettling. Yeah. I don't care if she's friendly or not. Anything like this with a child ghost is just so creepy. And basements are already creepy, too. So you got to come at me with that shit now, really? Mm-hmm. Okay. So, remember earlier when I said bye, Felicians? Yes. 
Well, maybe not so much because they also are said to haunt this place. Ghost nuns are so terrifying. They're only marginally less terrifying than real nuns. Exactly. Like real nuns are bad enough. <laughs> so I don't know how these nuns were in life, but the reputation in death is way different from the sweet, caring ladies that they're said to be. I guess you could say these nuns have some bad habits. Oh, uh, I know that one was really even worse than than my normal ones, uh, <laughs> but I still had to. I think more along the lines of the horror movie, uh, The Nun. Oh, yeah, I can't is more watch what that. I'm imagining. I, I haven't watched I, it, but I've seen previews. I've watched the trailer, and I'm like, nope, that is not a movie for me if I ever want to sleep tonight. Like I said, we both went to Catholic school. <laughs> we have a special place in our hearts for uh, scary nuns. You know what's even more terrible is like this is how dark and like creepy nuns are to me. It's like you know when you wake up sometimes and and you see a shape in your room, not a, not a shadow person, but like a lot of people have like that one chair where they throw all their clothes. Clothes. Like, yep. Yeah. So I have um like a little rack on the back of my closet door where I put bathrobes and stuff and. I can't. Most nights I'm like, nope, I got to put a towel up because this looks too much yeah. like a creepy nun in a, in, or like some kind of murder monk that I'm just, I cannot sleep. I've done that too. I've also rearranged like my comforter uh, because like if I have it and it's like piled up kind of next to me, I'll wake up and think it's a person. So I, I need to rearrange that shit. Mm-mm. Yeah. Good for you. But you are, you're going to love this because uh, what you said about the nuns, uh, these ladies are said to be pretty damn violent and people have been scratched and choked by them Hooray. and sometimes people will see them and the nuns will just rush at them all crazy no thank you i had enough of that in catholic school when i asked mm-hmm. the wrong questions i don't need that sister i'm gonna pass exactly yeah nope um they are said to be even worse to those with tattoos so you and i are both <laughs> screwed what? Why are they so? Yeah. Why, why they gotta be that way? It doesn't violate well, dress code, does it? Tattoos are from the devil, of course. And people have gotten a lot of photos of like shadows and habits, mm. and these spirits are not contained to just one part of the hospital, but they're all over the building. So I guess like nowhere <sighs> is fucking safe from them. That's the truly terrifying part. Is like, oh yeah, the chances of you seeing a ghost nun when you go there is probably off the charts. Yes. And there's also the ghost of a guy in a white t-shirt and jeans whose name is Doug Richards. He was a heavy equipment mechanic who died on the property in 1973, and he just kind of like walks around doing his own thing. He doesn't seem to pose a threat, unlike those damn nuns. Good old Dougie. Yeah, I like him. (laughs) There's also the ghost of a guy named TJ who died right outside the hospital during its brief stint as a rehab. Oh, he went there for help, but he, like, rang the doorbell and no one answered. And he just kept trying, but no one opened the door and he died right outside. That's super sad. Yeah. Now he just kind of, like, haunts the area by the back door. Uh, and in the maternity ward, I don't like this one either. In the maternity ward, you can hear the screams of, like, the expectant mothers, which is always nice. Mm-hmm. So now to round out the story and give everyone a little perspective and maybe help get some sleep tonight, uh, I read a blog that kind of debunked a few things here, sort of. <sighs> Thank God. But not really. No, oh, God. That's a tease, Eden. Uh, so, because, I mean, it's just a blog, so I don't know. 
Um, but first off, they said when researching this place that they couldn't find a lot about the deaths and that the number of the deaths had been wildly exaggerated. And it all boils down to misinformation uh, from our favorite person in the world, Zach Baggins, and his show <gasps> Ghost Adventures. Baggins messing something up? Right, yeah. Just to make it seem worse than it is for, uh, you know, ratings. That's uh, a bummer. Also, the source, this source also said that according to the records, the hospital was more of a, quote, overnight urgent care type of place okay. than a real hospital. So I don't know what to believe because everywhere else said it was like a, full, a full-fledged hospital. So I don't know. Um, this blogger said that during their research, they found that only 19,501 people ever checked into this hospital and that having 2,000 of them dying would be st- statistically impossible. Yeah. But I kind of beg to differ on that one, because even if there had only been that many patients in this place, it's still entirely possible. Their argument was that the place would have been shut down if there if that was the case. But think about it for a second. Not only was there no other hospital in the area, mm-hmm. but we've seen much worse places than this one stay open for years. So it's entirely possible. I think it's possible for sure. Like. Like, to your point, if it's truly terrible, those records might be a little shaky. And also, again, sometimes you just need to have some place to, quote unquote, help people, a.k.a. put people. Um, Yeah. And this sounds like one of those places. And, I mean, people are a lot more lenient with stuff that's run by a church. True. I've noticed. Because, like, it's in God's hands now. Jesus, take the wheel. Well, I imagine it's probably like a, a private facility too, considered yeah. private. So that's it's, another if whole it's wrinkle. Privately run, then yeah, you can't have government intrusion in there. So I don't know exactly what to believe about this story, uh, and I don't even know if you can tour here anymore to find out. Uh, the building isn't up to code as of 2010. It appears that it stopped offering tours, but then according to another source, however, you can at least tour it on Halloween. So I'm just not sure. And I couldn't find an actual website for the hospital. So I guess we'll never know. I do know that there was like a petition going around to reopen it, but I, this was all around like 2010, 2011. So everything could have changed by then. Hmm. All I know is that they do not have a website. So that's kind of disconcerting. Interesting. Yeah, I am okay with there not being tours of that place. I don't think it's some place <laughs> I need to go. It sounds fucking yeah. terrifying. It really does sound terrifying. This place definitely will give me nightmares because <laughs> it's, wow, there's a lot going on here. Yeah, it's like Baggins or no, I uh, still don't want to go to there. Exactly. Me either. I can't do it. Not with those nuns. Like I Mm-mm. said, Catholic school is enough for me. Now, that is my story. I do have some sources. Cool. Tell me about your sources. Wikipedia, which wasn't a huge help this week, but it was something. Um, hauntedrooms.com. FeliciansistersNA.org. TexasHillCountry.com. K-A-A-N-T-I-R-A.blogspot.com. VictoriaAdvocate.com, NewsForSanAntonio.com, MySanAntonio.com, and HoustonChronicle.com. Very nice. Very nice. All righty. I guess that is the end of our episode for you this week. If you would like to get in contact with us, 
you can do so at our email, which is roadsidehorrorshow at gmail.com. If you enjoyed this Texas supersized episode this week, <laughs> please feel free to leave a review and rate our podcast. It always helps bubble up our tiny little independent show to other folks who might enjoy some of the creepier sites on our road trip. It really would be a huge help, and we thank you in advance. Uh, you can also visit our website, which is roadsidehorrorshow.podbean.com. And you can stop by our Facebook and Instagram page, which is Roadside Horror Show, or check us out on Twitter at Roadside Horror. We'd like to thank Yox Rocks Designs for our logo and Emassy for our intro and outro music. Until next week, gang, creep, creep on, on, creeping, creeping on. on.